0: Episode number 76 on the Faith in a Fresh Vibe podcast. I am Ro Hattie coming at you from Treaty 7 Territory in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Trey Ferguson is on deck. Yes, yes. Jesus, Justice and Jokes. Loving theologizing and black power napping. It's Trey Ferguson, y'all. He's got his own podcast with two others called Three Black Men, and he is the author of his debut book called Theologizing Bigger. I endorsed Trey's book. It was my honor, my pleasure, and now he comes on the show. One of the few guests who have come through a second time. Season 10 continues with authors and their books. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please rate. Please leave a comment and share with all of your friends. Let's jump into this interview with Pastor Trey. Uh, Pastor Trey, so before this episode airs, uh, I will be playing the children's song, the B-I-B-L-E. That is the book for me. Uh, I don't know if there are any remixes of that cult classic, but we're going to talk about your book that, I don't know if you interrogate, is that the right word? But you bring the Bible to life in new imagination.
1: There we go. Here we go. I don't, yeah, I, I think part of it is an interrogation, but not interrogating for the sake of interrogating, interrogating for the sake of uh, familiarity and intimacy, you know, uh, a relationship that changes uh, from one of distant reverence to uh, intimate transformation, you know.
0: There are words that we often use as Christians or that we've heard preached from the pulpit. And some of them need to be reclaimed because for a lot of folks, especially in the deconstruction crowd, they have a complicated relationship with scripture. They have a complicated relationship with the Bible. And you are giving us pivot points to reclaim, embody expansive imagination. I feel like you used my
1: imagination in the book. I could be wrong. A lot. Yeah, yeah, like one one or two times, probably, like one or two times, maybe. At <laughs> least, I mean, I think I read it. it yeah. More than,
0: more than happy to endorse here, but uh, welcome to the show. We kicked off, but let's slow down and intro. You are one of the
1: few guests that have been on this show more than once. That's the way it's supposed to be. I feel like I'm home here. Let them know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. Don't talk to me like I'm regular, like I, I, am, I am here
0: yeah (laughs) it's like you never left yes sir every guest that comes to the show i ask them to situate themselves to the land so i've already alluded to where you're at if you want the full intro of trey then you're gonna hit up the earlier episode i probably should have had the number whatever trey welcome where are you situated and whose
1: lands do your feet touch right now for sure i'm in uh homestead of florida that's the southern portion of miami-dade county um, the lands of the Seminole, Miccosukee, muskogo taino and sequester's peoples um, many of whom are still here holding it down like they never left and it's a beautiful thing
0: we're going to center around your book your debut book I bet you're going to come back for a third time for all the next books that you're going to write, but also for all the different ideas of how you approach publishing. That's a different show. On this show, we're going to be talking about Theologizing Bigger, homilies on living freely and loving holy. So I want to approach your debut. Congratulations. Man, I'm so excited for how many people are going to pick this one up because there is within, contained within, gems. Again, I'm going to keep using the word imagination that we don't often pick up in in Christian land, especially on these shores of Turtle Island, where we are given permission to think and live in life-giving ways, and you're bringing forward to the center, I hope, the new center, these different ways of thinking and being within both Christian faith, but also uh, reclamation of sorts of the stories in the Bible
1: or the Bible itself. Most definitely. Yeah, I I appreciate not only your congratulations, but your help at every step of the way. Um, Long before Theologizing Bigger was a concept, you helped me out as a friend and, and as an author that I was aspiring to be in, in terms of showing me the ropes in a few different things. Uh, you didn't hesitate to uh, lend your voice when we were looking for endorsers. I appreciate that. You were the very first person to actually leave a review on Goodreads. You're, you're the first <laughs> one. Um, <laughs> and and um, I, I will not easily forget the support and the enthusiasm that you have shown, not only for me as an author and a creator, but um, as a friend every step of the way. So I appreciate you, bro. Man, the the
0: pleasure is all mine. Thanks for uh, pumping my tires there. I didn't even know I was showing up. I was just like, this dude, I I've got to get behind the ideas that you have. And you also, you have a way of interacting with folks online, which I think is, is the antithesis. Now, no, it's not the antithesis because that puts it on the same spectrum. T- compared to the, the regular Theo bro online, your <laughs> response is very pastoral in a way, but cutting to the heart of the matter with a sense of comedic uh, delivery. And I think that is life giving because you give people a chance to to walk away intact, <laughs> yeah. in a sense, with maybe their dignity. But you will put them on blast. Uh, check out Trey's Twitter, for example. And you you turned all that stuff into a book. Not all of it, but you brought what every chapter. Yeah has like a tweet or something some ridiculous yeah every chapter
1: starts with a tweet yeah yeah <laughs> most definitely um and that was shout out to, to jazz roberts uh who 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 was like, hey, you need to write a book. And I was like, I don't have anything to write. She was like, you could just turn your (laughs) tweets into a book. And I I struck the middle ground there. But yeah, at the end of the day, I gotta gotta stay true to me. Cause at the end of the day, I'm not just this stack of theories and theologies. I'm a person who does a lot of thinking and things of that nature. And Mm -hmm. there are people who desire me to show up a certain way. Like, yo, I can only be me and you can approach me as something other than me at your own peril, but at the end of the day, you will get me Mm. in fullness, right? Mm. And I am somebody who is at once dedicated to the wholeness of my brothers and sisters, my siblings in Christ and creation, and someone who is very comfortable in my own skin, right? I don't necessarily crave or need Validation from internet strangers who don't seem particularly enjoyable to begin with, <laughs> and, and sometimes that that colors the way these these interactions That's go. Probably you know? why they
0: like that. Nobody's inviting them to the parties.
1: Yeah, you know it. It, it ain't got to be that way. You you don't you don't. Jesus did not die. And raise on the third day for people to be out here living like losers out loud. You know, that's a choice. You don't you don't have to live your life like a herb. And I don't mean losers positionally in society, like the your social location. I mean for you to be out here just taking L's just because you don't know how to interact (laughs) nicely. That's a choice. You don't have to do that anymore. There's freedom on the other side of this, right? Like. I made myself really easy to love. God made me really easy to love. <laughs> we, don't, we don't gotta do the hate thing, I'm better at it than you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so whenever there's a controversy, a particular theological opinion, you're using the same tools of scripture and understanding and theology to come in many respects to very different places or conclusions. And one that typically grants life rather than takes it away.
1: It's not a secret that I am a bit of a provocateur at times, right? Um, and it, it is grating partially because I'm a Black man who says and does what he wants to do, right? I'm, I'm not ignorant to that fact. There are some people who naturally, whether or not they're able to name these things, they view my position as one of catching up. I I always, they they want me to prove my theological bona fides Mm -hmm. because there's Mm -hmm. this inherent belief that black theology is inherently deficient, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And what frustrates a lot of people is that I don't feel the need to prove myself. I've already proven all that there is. (laughs) Everything you need to know about me has already been done. You get to feel how you want. You can disregard me if you want, but I'm not like, I'm I'm at a place in life where I'm confident and In the going crowd or whatever. I, I don't feel the need to prove my bona fides to anybody at this juncture. But when it comes to being a provocateur, my philosophy is that there is no such thing as growth that happens in comfort. Growth is a naturally uncomfortable process. That's not to say that it is, um, A bad thing, or or like displeasurable, but even there's a term even physical growth called growing pains. You see it throughout nature, right? Like one of the things that spurs like mollusks when when they're growing, like there's a discomfort when they're coming up against their shell. And one of the things that I um, view as as not only a calling but a gifting of mine is moving people to this place of discomfort that then allows them to grow beyond their current constraints. Because at the end of the day, I don't think that faith constrains us. I think that some of the systems that we've inherited, some of the the communities that we've inherited are a bit constraining. And because I believe that the God of the universe is bigger than any one faith system Mm. or any one faith community, including the ones that I've inherited, Mm. I will often try to lead people through this process of seeing things in a, a little bit of a bigger light. Now, some of that comes from the fact that I was raised by people who prioritized that level of questioning and that level of examination. and it took me a while to realize that that's not everybody's testimony. At the same time, I think that there is value in leaning into that discomfort sometimes, and in leading into those unknown places that may not have been prioritized in the tradition that you've inherited right and so when you say some of those interactions might be undergirded by me chipping away at foundational blocks using the same tools of scripture and the story of Jesus yeah no that that's absolutely there uh, because i view certainty as somewhat inimical uh, and antithetical to faith mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the comforts that we enjoy will often have us tethered to places that God is trying to call us out of, mm. Mm. and so um, I don't really shy away from being that—I um, guess you can call it—an irritant, <laughs> or, or, or or that agent that that probes you um, in places that make you a little uncomfortable.
0: But I mean, it's it's not like you're going out looking for this. There are people who will drop right. through people people's mentions but you're not you're not doing that they're coming to you
1: for <laughs> for some precisely <laughs> i tell people all the time like, I, I really don't bother nobody like i just be tweeting into a void and there's happened to be a lot of people to follow me and then there are people who feel like i owe them arguments also. i'm like no no that, I, that that's not what this is at all you're free to disagree you can call me a false teacher you can call me a heretic oh so you're not even going to answer my claims that is correct i will not i, I will not do the work what would jesus do jesus sat there and and let people say whatever they wanted to say and only spoke up a couple times that that's where we are right now you get to say what you want and i get to know who i am i
0: think a lot of folks would expect you or perhaps place you into a box and part of that is connected to racist tropes of Mm -hmm. being the black thought leader or black preacher and embodying that type of worldview. And, Mm -hmm. and my take is, is yes, those things, uh, not the trope of it, but the, the, the history that goes before you, but you're also Mm -hmm. teasing these out in, in a new light, which I don't always see within institutional paradigms. Um, but I am not the expert in, in those spaces and places. I, my my sense is the way you use story and the voice that you have is, and I'll be careful in the way I say this, but it's like almost this new third way. And I know third ways, we always use that term, <laughs> third way, but uh, it, it is this decolonial adventure.
1: Yeah, I don't know to what extent anything I'm doing is original. Um, I do stand on the shoulders of people in their tradition of black theology. Um, and when I say that, I, I don't just mean all black people doing theology. I mean, people who view the black experience as a legitimate starting point and a, a legitimate launching point for Doing God talk and and having conversations about theology, right? Mm-hmm. I stand on the shoulders of Bishop Henry Mill Turner. I stand on the shoulders of Jarena Lee and of Howard Thurman and of Martin Luther King and of Kelly Brown Douglas and Dolores of Light. Those are people that I admire in that way, but. Um, Earlier, I mentioned I can only be me. I can only show up in authenticity. And I even talk about it a bit in the book. The way my mind works, I'm always spinning stories. I'm always sermonizing. I'm always doing that, right? And if there is any truth to the notion of a vocation or a calling or the fact that this is something that God, the creator of the universe, has designed me to do that I have to believe the way that I'm specifically wired as a human being has to bear on how I carry these conversations. So reuniting that passion for the things of God and theology and theologizing and all that stuff with the ways that I draw connections between history, story, possibilities, um, all of those things like that. It's the only thing that feels like me, as opposed to trying to be somebody else. I'll never be Martin Luther King. I'll never be Howard Thurman. I'll never be Sojourner Truth, Jorena Lee. Like, I'll never be those people, but I can be me and I can do that pretty well.
0: There's a beauty in in your words, and I, I want to stop uh, their pause around them because I think it is an affirmation for listeners as well in that you have found assuredness in your voice, in, in who you are. And it's not because you're a preacher. It's not because you're a minister. Like, you don't need to be those things to find your home and place in Christ. And there's folks out there that are, are being tossed to and fro in many ways, but you can find your anchoring and place and assuredness in yourself and you in community that puts you in a more beautiful uh, place. Don't need the credentials to do that. Uh, you can find that 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 home, really, that home.
1: That's, that's really what it is. That is part of what salvation mm-hmm. looks like. That is what liberation yeah, looks yeah, like. Yeah. You recognizing that God made you good creation, that God was pleased to craft yeah. you as you are, um, mm. as, as some of what that looks like, right? As long as we are led to believe, as long as we feel compelled that we have to look like anybody else that ain't mm. Jesus, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. then then we're not really free. We're not really experiencing Ooh. the fullness of the life that God has called us to. Oof, oof.
0: And, and there's, there's some healing there, especially those who have been wounded within the context of Christian community, that there's some healing that needs to go down in places and spaces in your own self that says that you can be free from the tangles that said that you were less than, that you can be mm, free yeah. and find your whole self, A- and people who resonate with that pursuit as well, even though in many respects, especially if you're at the start of that type of journey, it's, it seems lonely but you can find yeah. that freedom. Let's talk about uh, the reclamation of sorts of some of the stories uh, towards that freedom because that is a very different salvation than the one that is routinely preached within contemporary Christianity. One that says yeah. that we escape this world for heaven in the clouds. It's a disembodied salvation and one that when you think about it, uh, it makes sense if you have no needs in the present. You can just escape here and go spend eternity someplace else but it also means that there is no tangible incarnate embodied liberation or salvation here and now that i can touch feel smell and be a part of and you are opening the door and giving language for the latter
1: most definitely i think we have to be honest about the fact that the the get out of hell free card salvation that is preached is in many senses bankrupt it's not orthodox Yeah, right and and it's also a nice little sleight of hand that Mm -hmm. we can talk about this wonderful eternity um that remains rhetorical and i'm Mm -hmm. not saying that it's not real but i'm saying that it is literally not tangible it is a faith declaration, a faith statement. We're selling people something that they can, we we cannot demonstrably prove or anything of the nature. And that, in my opinion, is tough to take seriously. It is hard to scare people with an eternal hell, eternal conscious torment, who are experiencing hell on earth. And if you cannot address the very real plight of people here and now, they don't have much of a reason to take you seriously messages of salvation. And I think it's important to note that the Jesus that we see spoken of in scripture is one who meets material needs in the here and now, even as he speaks of a coming kingdom that is yet here, right? The physical healings and the physical liberation, those tangible needs are a sign of the inbreaking of that kingdom. And so I think it's important for us to wrestle with whether or not we take it seriously when Jesus instructs his disciples to pray on earth as it is in heaven. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If that is um, truly our prayer, then we cannot stop with the eternal implications of what salvation means. We are invited through baptism into the life, burial, resurrection of Jesus, we're invited to partner with Jesus in making all things new right here and right now. Yes. Amen.
0: I want to touch on this idea. It's it's going to be a story that is, and and I want to speak to BIPOC folks predominantly, but uh, white folks too, they're going to resonate with this story. I want to generalize here Uh, not drilled down into specific theological conundrums, but the reclamation of the Bible. Let's tease that out. Okay, let me paint the picture. Uh, I have friends who I've lost contact with now, but they come from a vein of Christianity that is right-leaning, We'll call it conservative, perhaps fundamentalist. And they believe in certain aspects of the Bible, sin, um, particular theologies around sin and atonement, why did Jesus have to die, um, of most importantly humanity and what it means to be image-bearing humans in pursuit of fullness of life. And they will use scripture to pull away at others' humanity, and I think predominantly the LGBTQ community for queer folks, for trans folks. They will have particular worldviews of environment, uh, certainly around race. You're using the same, not using, you're invited into the stories uh, of the same thing, scripture, the Bible, yet coming Mm -hmm. out with far different ways of understanding what's happening here. So how should we contend with the oft-cited phrase of this is what the Bible says around, say, same-gendered marriage, around trans folks, around all these different intersections of controversial topics that, for lack of a better term, the right has in juxtaposition to what the left has? Now, I know I just put that on a spectrum, which
1: many ways we operate outside of. Yes. When it comes to reclaiming that, for me, the only spectrum that matters is the spectrum between cosmology and eschatology. The creation of the world and the last things, the, the revelation of the kingdom here and now, right? Mm-hmm. And the line connecting those two points, the spectrum, we will call the way, right? Mm And that's what Jesus is calling us to. Mm -hmm. Everything else is a divergence. So much so that Jesus even points to, at one point, a point where a a scripture, a law of Moses, does not accurately reflect the way. When he talks about divorce, they say, hey, like, why does Moses permit a divorce if if it's not? He says that that is a concession to your heart and hearts, but from the beginning, that is not what God intended. The problem that many of us contend with, even as we're dealing with the Bible, is that things that are clearly concessions to the hardened hearts of people living in a broken world, Hmm. we are framing our worldview around those things as opposed to that spectrum I just mentioned, Uh where Uh everything in my mind has to synthesize the creation of the world, the created order cosmology and eschatology? What do we believe will be the last things? And luckily Jesus spends a bit of time talking about this coming kingdom. So when it comes to things like same gender marriage, one of the things that Jesus says and Paul affirms is that marriage is not an essential in the kingdom. It just is not. Uh, Jesus even says, uh, he says that, oh, you're you you you're mistaken in the kingdom that people will neither be given in marriage, nor will they marry. And the disciples are like, yo, like, maybe it's better not to marry. Jesus is like, hey, man, like, not everybody can handle that truth. That That is what Jesus says. Yeah. Paul uh, says that again, Paul affirms when he says that, oh, um, it, it's actually better if, if you can stay single. Like, I'm not telling everybody to get divorced. It's better to stay single if you can't handle that to go ahead and get married. But so much of the emphasis that we place around the institution of marriage is actually more reflective of the cultures we inhabit than it is the faith mm-hmm. that we carry, mm-hmm. right? Or the scriptures at mm-hmm. least. Mm-hmm. The, the, <laughs> that, that, that's, mm-hmm. that's actually right there in the text. And so, what it comes down to for me is, where is there the most wholeness to be found? I fully affirming of the right of two people if, if they desire. To to uh, two people of the same gender, if they desire to go ahead and get married. Let's 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 do that. At the end of the day, that's not in the kingdom at all. And people ask me they're like, "Oh, so you think that God blesses that?" I don't think that God blesses most or a bunch of heterosexual unions. Truth be told, like I think that we can examine the fruits and see that. And so mm-hmm. there are times when I think that we have concerned ourselves so much with systems and practices that are like the main reason. Marriage exists in our cultures is a means of transferring property, right? Like, it's like Mm -hmm. even in the Bible, we see that. That's um. And yeah. you can see that even in this, I'm not being unbiblical when I say this, the verse that everybody likes to point to, uh, Genesis 2, 4, I think, where uh, for this reason, uh, man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. It's not actually describing what happens with Adam and Eve. It's grounding a cultural tradition in what happens with them because according to the text, Adam does not have a father and mother to leave. They're patterning something after Adam and Eve. And then people like to say things like, well, marriage is supposed to be a picture of Christ in the church. No, you have that backwards, actually. What Paul is saying is that we should try as best as possible to make our marriage reflect the relationship between Christ and the church, which is actually sacrificial. It's slightly subversive of the patriarchal norms of the time because marriage was already a thing, even people who did not believe in the same God that Paul believed in. So marriage is just one example right there, but one of the things we need to contend with here is a lot of what we insist are matters of quote-unquote biblical import are in the Bible, absolutely, but they are not part of the created order as we so much insist, and they are not things that Jesus affirms as being essential to the coming kingdom. I think we get distracted a lot by trying to baptize baptize the culture in the language of the Bible. I could go on for hours about this one topic there, but when it comes to like reclaiming the Bible in this way, for me, what it looks like is, okay, what are the things that we are to take here? Do we take this idea of a coming kingdom seriously, and what does that mean for us? I can't sit here arguing with people about marriage all day if Jesus says that's not even going to be in the kingdom
0: what do you think is the catalyst for folks who are in that zone of more uh, of a proof texting of scripture? And they think that they are not doing violence to the scripture to become more alert of more life giving ways to appreciate and value the same writings.
1: I think we have to realize a bit about the history of the Christian faith in general, Like proof texting as a practice kind of explodes with the Reformation because the Reformation is largely wrought by the printing press, the invention of the printing press, which means that for the first 1400 years or so of Christian history, the idea that, followers of Jesus, that Christians were engaged in regular personal Bible study to the extent that we are now was just not possible, mm-hmm. right? There's a reason that most Catholic people have a different relationship with the scriptures than most Protestants, and that is because their tradition is older and was founded around and, and, and centered around things other than personal Bible study. So the whole solo script short thing and everything, like no, that that is largely a technological <laughs> invention. Mm-hmm. Like it, it was not possible for most Christians throughout history. And when we sit with that, what we need to realize is that the main way that people were able to carry these the, the Bible and the scriptures was not in the memorizing of verses, but the carrying of stories. Yes. Oh, yeah. That is the heart of the historic Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And that's not to denigrate the role that some of these other scriptures play but at, at the end of the day that's not how this faith worked for the majority of history there's a reason why this was built around rights like mass or, or or taking the Eucharist regularly and, and confessions and everything, those are things that can be rehearsed over and over. There's a reason that the stories resonate, because we could tell bedtime stories. We make up stories. It's a little bit harder for us to do that with epistles and things of that our nation would. So that was how this faith tradition was handed down for centuries upon centuries before proof texting even showed up on most of our radars, right? Um. <laughs> And when you do that, like, realize that it's a perfectly legitimate way of approaching the Bible. Um, oh, outside of proof texting, I mean. Now, the other thing, when you mention doing violence to the text, I think we have to be able to call that what it is. Like, proof texting, I don't view that as a very serious way of engaging Scripture to begin with, because what is often happening there is we're, we're doing this cut and paste job, right? We're doing a little middle school collage. We're making ransom notes out of what we consider oh, sacred sure. text. We're doing patchwork quilts. Yeah. And the only reason we're doing that, like a, a patchwork quilt or or a collage, mm. is to cover something else. Mm. Proof texting will almost demand that you start with one presupposition yes, and then cut around the text to be able to support that right there. Mm-hmm. And we have to be comfortable Naming the fact that that's not a serious or honest way of handling scriptures. If you want to know what I believe about something, it's not mm-hmm. best to cut around my words. It's best to read what I actually said mm-hmm. <laughs> in this concept. Read my book. Don't just to settle for the Kindle quotes, right? And then to actually develop doctrines around the sound bites and the Kindle quotes of the Bible, um, I don't think it's a very serious way of engaging with faith.
0: But I can imagine that many who are within that realm of of ransom noting the Bible that they have produced doctrines that they have produced mm-hmm. ways of of systematizing their beliefs yes so in the sense that they're they would say they're using the same approach what is yeah, the chief uh, difference or differences
1: is that we end up with An approach in often systems that are riddled with holes, right? So a key example would be uh, the penal substitutionary theory of atonement, right? It's most ardent adherents and proponents now. They have walls and walls of proof text, things that they say suggest a penal substitutionary nature of the atonement in the Bible. However, if you put any of those verses back in context, it is very clear that it's not actually talking about what they say it is, right? They'll they'll go to the scripture that says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. As though to suggest that that points to a penal substitutionary atonement nature of the cross. When the fact of the matter is that God said in the Garden of Eden that if you eat of this, you will surely die. And somehow Adam did not end up on a cross. People have been dying ever since then. Between Adam and Jesus, everybody minus Enoch and maybe Melchizedek and Elijah died. Everybody already paid the wages of sin according to Romans 3.23, that, that has already been done. It does not make sense that you would then suggest that, that means that somebody had to get tortured to death in order to appease God, right? But when you rip that verse from context and don't look at the actual, the the that spectrum I was talking about, the thread collect, connecting uh, the created order, the creation of the world and the last things, then it's easy to pluck these things and then build a different argument. That's how we can build arguments for things like chattel slavery. It's mm. how we can build an argument for things like patriarchy. We could do all Mm -hmm. of those things when we pluck these out and skip all the parts where God identifies as a liberator. The foundation Mm -hmm. of the 10 commandments is I am the Lord, your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. That's how God chooses to identify. And when we skip around and we do all these cutting and pasting and everything, we can misrepresent the character of Mm -hmm. God in fundamental ways, which is honestly, which is honestly, what the serpent does in the Garden of Eden when he says, no, God doesn't want this because like misrepresenting the character of God is the Mm -hmm. easiest way to sidetrack somebody and get them out of the will of God, right? And I think that we often put ourselves in danger of doing that very thing when we rely on proof texting at the expense of sitting with the stories of God and the stories of the people behind the text, right? Even Paul's own story, when we separate ourselves from Paul's story and in, in, in his own testimony of being somebody who was so zealous about the Torah the and upholding the law, when we separate him from that, we lose the impact of what he had to experience on that road to Damascus, where everything that he knew to be true, everything that he was so sure of was upended by the revelation of Jesus. And a lot of us act with that same zealous heart that Paul possesses, before this Damascus experience, um, that then reroutes him to being so humble by the fact that look, everything I thought was was the way to this thing. And and mind you, Paul never disavows the Torah. That, that doesn't happen. What he does say is that this is not going to lead us where faith in the resurrection will. Those are answering mm. two different questions. Yes. Right. We miss that whole part of Paul's story when we cut these verses out of their context. The the story of Paul will will make the letters of Paul come into better focus for us. But the sound bites from Paul are never going to get the job done. Mm-hmm.
0: You hit it there with the character of God. That's what right. I was teasing out the character of God because I can picture. And and I'm creating that straw man in, in, my, in my mind here of that Bible alone crowd, but a particular worldview of what that Bible says. Uh, and they would say, well, you can make, ironically, the Bible say whatever you want. And we're just trying to faithfully obey what the Bible says. Yet when push comes to shove, that foundational piece is how that narrative arc from Genesis to Revelation reveals a particular character of who God is. I think that we can rest in that place where two very different gods start to emerge. There's the Christ figure, And the God of liberation, who seeks humanity's wholeness and fullness, the one that sets the captives free. And then if we were honest to interrogate the depths and foundations, the bedrock that informs the picture of who we think God is, it's the one that requires blood, sacrifice to appease vengeance. It is the one that welcomes violence to the foreigner. It is one that does not hope for the liberation of all things.
1: I do not know if it is fair to say that there are two different portraits of God that emerge, Mm -hmm. so much so that there are two different social locations that are telling the story of God. Mm. I'll give you an example of that, right? When we talk about God being um, somebody who who supports vengeance and everything. Yes, there there are very uncomfortable and problematic stories in the Bible of genocide. To bring that into current focus, right? Like if I, as a black man in the United States celebrate the civil war as the thing that unlocked the liberation of my enslaved ancestors, hmm. if I see God's activity there, we also have to deal with the fact that that is still to this very day the bloodiest conflict in the history of the United States of America. And so where you're sitting and how you understand what liberation looks like for you will often under will often uh, impact how we are talking about these realities. We see something sort of similar happening right now in in the Middle East in in Palestine where there are are people who are saying, like, no, these people have a right to fight for their freedom. Like, no, but not this way. Right. And so I think there are times we forget that the people who are talking about God commanding them to wipe out everything are sitting on the shores of the Euphrates in exile in Babylon, trying to cling on to an identity where they are not oppressed. Which is, 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 it sounds like I'm trying to sanitize the story. No, the stories are problematic, but it's one of those things that I can almost sort of relate to. One of the things, when we talk about the character of God, what I see uniting from Genesis to Revelation is that God is a creator who creates things for our sustenance, right? In the Garden of Eden, everything was called good and sustained the people that God created. In the new heavens and the new earth, God then again rings order out of disorder. God makes all things new. It's the same thing we see happening in in Genesis, right? That's the common thread there. And what happens is in the Bible, we are reading the story of a people. The people that we see that we're reading the story of in in the Old Testament, they're not speaking from a universalist perspective. They're saying this is who we are as a people. This is what defines us as the Hebrew people, as, as the people of Israel, as um, and a lot of times we lose sight of that because their scriptures have been incorporated into our Christian faith, which is a more universal faith. It's not so much uh, marked by ethnicity in that way. But these scriptures work. are saying no, like we we keep getting dragged into exile or oppression. Slaves in Egypt were exiles in Assyria and Babylon and Persia. And now the Greeks are in our place and all this stuff. And sometimes. When you're that used to being held down, you need God to be a fighter, you need God to be a warrior. you need that, right? Um, and so we often sit from a place of privilege when we say that, "Oh wow, their God was x, y, z like no i've I've been sometimes uh places where no, I, I needed God to be that." And what is really uh being communicated there is that through the dry places and the hard places, the same God who created paradise for us in eden um, made a place to sustain us <laughs> in 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 this this place right here right and 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 that's the uniting character there but we often erase the people behind the text read ourselves into the text and have a hard time relating to the stories therein. am i making sense when i say that mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. i think that's that's one of the dangers that we Do not divorce ourselves from the magnitude of how we interpret scriptures through our own lens, and do not understand how it might have uh, been understood by those first listeners of the stories.
1: Like I, I, I even talk about it in the book a little bit. When I talk about in-house discussions, that we're 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 missing a lot of context. Some of that context will never like recover fully. And that's okay, but the more that we are able to remove ourselves from the world of the text, the more that we're able to decenter ourselves. I think the more we'll be able to understand what they were trying to communicate about God, because yes, like when when we read the text objectively, right? <laughs> Meaning that like we're we're as close to the, the the truth being communicated as the original audience and the original author would have. That, that's essentially what we're saying. When we're saying we're reading the text objectively, then some of these stories are troubling and it's still troubling when we think about it. But when we restore the humanity to the text and behind the text, we see the emotions that are shaping these stories. Some of that stuff makes a little bit more sense, right? Mm. Well, that's a, that's a feature
0: of restoring the humanity to the text. Yeah. And many times that's a skill. And then if you haven't been in a community that has teased out some of those questions it's really hard to come to a new understanding of how you might approach the scriptures you have this chapter in your book in the final part as we trail out here the future looks different i know you don't position your community the church that you are you lead as a and you wouldn't deconstruction is is predominantly a a new movement out of white evangelicalism. Um, And you may not use words like decolonizing, but there is a particular way of being in in our modern world. So can you tease out now some of the features of what this current and future posture of both Christians, but also Christians in community, looks like?
1: I think the future of our faith is humble, as Jesus was. And to whatever extent we come to power or the levers of powers, um, it is only leveraged for the benefit of those around us, not just those who look, think, act, and sound like us. And I think that as we embrace that humility, it will engender a curiosity. And as we embrace that curiosity, it will um, lead us to seek more consistently. And as we seek, we will realize all of the things that we once held as absolutes that were in fact, cultural shibboleths and nothing more right i think that we will acknowledge an absolute truth even as we recognize that we have not always been the guardians or stewards of said truth but seekers just like everybody else and i think that as we embrace this humility this curiosity seeking tendencies, that we will begin to look more like the disciples and the people that Jesus called us to be, as opposed to agents of the very imperial powers that crucified Him to begin with.